Once again, I'd like to encourage you to use this talk as an opportunity for you to listen, to learn how to listen. In order to listen to me, you really have to listen to you. In order to learn how to pay attention, a lot of it is seeing inattention. And so to learn the art of listening, you have to learn how you don't listen. And in order to do that, you have to listen, but to yourself. <laughs> then you'll be able to perhaps hear what someone else has to say. I'd like to uh, continue where we left off last evening. few odds and ends still having to do with the body. Of course, the, uh, it's a vast subject, as are any of these uh, four foundations of mindfulness. So if you recall, the first of the four is the, is the body, kayanupasana. Um, I think we covered a lot uh, of some, some of the essentials. One thing that's sometimes overlooked is that uh, part of mindfulness of the body uh, is getting to know your body. It's getting to understand it. And sometimes it's as if uh, people who are really serious Vipassana yogis uh, have a block against learning this. That is, the body is somehow there only to learn that it's impermanent and that it uh, gets old, sick, and that it dies so that we don't attach to it, you know, the, our litany that we have here. I mean, it's not just a litany. These are true. We do get old, sick, and die. But in other words, we're in the wisdom business, all of us here. And somehow we're afraid that if we start to use mindfulness to learn about the body and health, uh, maybe we'll drop down from that high pinnacle of wisdom and get all caught up in just having a body that lives forever or that has a, you know, just the right measurement of the thighs or, you know, all these advertisements now. Different equipment and training to get just the perfect thighs. It's not silly to the people who are paying for it and doing it. But even if you read through the Buddha, the Buddha scattered throughout are, are uh, definitely uh, suggestions that mindfulness uh, is to help you in terms of your health. Because if you can take care of your body and it's healthy, obviously it's an asset in practice. It doesn't follow that you have to get uh, all narcissistically involved and obsessed with your body just because you become mindful of it. You don't have to limit mindfulness to just seeing the arising and passing away of every aspect, every bodily sensation. It's just some simple basics to give you a feeling for this. And there are teachers in Asia who do teach this, but not so many. I would say perhaps the health of the body is not Buddhism's strong point. Uh, a simple thing, as you, if you start to be mindful of the body, and that's what that, this um, contemplation is about, if, uh, you will, if you're interested, you'll learn the answer to questions like uh, how to feed your body, how much should you give it to eat, and what. Uh, instead of just taking it from the latest theory or book or uh, what the New York Times says because some scientific bureau decided this is what you should eat now. I mean, you can learn from books and health food stores and all that I do, but finally you have to pay attention to your body to see what it tells you, to listen to it, so that it tells you whether uh, the kinds of food you're giving it is really helpful. Whether, now for example, uh, on a retreat, I would think a high priority was, would be for the mind to be clear and for us to have energy. So does the kind of food we take and the amount that we take, does it help the mind become clear and does it give it energy? Or does it contribute to dullness, lethargy, 
restlessness and so forth, food is very powerful. And if you pay attention, you start to learn uh, what your mind, what your body needs, how much food to give it and what kind, how much water to give it, same. Fluids, you could say, but particularly water. And how much sleep it needs. Instead of settling for a mechanical, well, a good yogi sleeps four hours, that's one way to do it. And then you work around that, and of course things can be learned. Another way is to use your own discernment and to develop wisdom and understanding, sensitivity, around getting to know your body so that you know how much sleep it needs. So that if you don't need sleep, you can practice more. And if you do need sleep, you go to sleep. I think personally that's harder than the other, which is a kind of military drill. You know, you have a figure is given to you. This is what you say. Everyone does this. And then you conform. In the short run, it's more impressive. And it challenges you. And you, you know, all kinds of heroics around, yeah, I, I only get four hours sleep now. I've got to cut it down to three now. <laughs> Um, but I would say if you look at your whole life, and it's a marathon, what's more useful is to develop a real sensitivity to the body, to know when it's tired, to know when it's hungry, to know what it needs. And that's another byproduct of mindfulness practice. It can be if you allow yourself to learn from this realm. If you don't, then you won't. It's as simple as that. Uh, in terms of Anapanasati specifically. Uh, probably many, if not most, for all I know, all of you know what pranayama is, which is uh, a yogic discipline of controlling the breathing uh, in a sensible way. Uh, it's a very powerful method used not so much in, not used, we think, not used in let's say Theravadan Buddhism or Zen. Tibetans have certain yogas. And we think that's more a Hinduism or Raja Yoga or Hatha Yoga and so forth. But the truth is what you're doing, Anapanasati, if you stay with it, is a form of pranayama. It's a very, very refined form. It's not that it's superior to some of the ones where you control your breath. Uh, it accomplishes some of the same things and not some of the same things. Uh, again, you might say, well, how is it pranayama if we're not controlling the breath? But we are doing something with the breath. Uh, just to watch the breath as you learn how to do it without controlling it, but to be conscious of your breathing. You probably have already seen this and we've been uh, saying it all along. Uh, if you're aware of the breathing, the awareness changes the quality of the breathing. As your awareness is more continuous of the breath, you can feel that the breath changes. It becomes much more fine, it becomes deeper, smoother, more harmonious, and so forth. Uh, so this is another uh, byproduct because out of that comes more energy. Uh, that's some of what pranayama does for you. It helps you, it's a science of energy. And so is this. Now whether you know it or not, it will come to you if you do a lot of breath watching, then of course what starts to happen is the quality of your breathing improves. Western science, Western medicine is not as um, receptive or doesn't see the importance of breath in terms of overall health quite as much as it is seen uh, in Asia. And, and not just Asia, the ancients had seemed to have a much better grasp of how important the breath is. And so some of the benefits that come out of sustained Anapanasati practice, not that you're doing it to get that, but it comes out of it. If, you just, if, you're with, if you are conscious of your breathing a lot, what happens is the quality of your breath changes and it's for the better. Uh, people who have all kinds of blockages in their breathing, um, some of that is smoothed out, asthmatics are helped. Again, we're not doing it in order to attain that necessarily. And that comes from a concentrated mind as well. Because mindfulness itself is a, is a healing energy. Okay, um, 
The only other aspect of the kayan upasana, or the contemplation of the body, that I wanted to go into uh, in some detail is one that's very basic. You've been doing it, but I just want you to know that we didn't make it up. Part of the contemplation of the body are, and this comes from the, from the Satipatthana Sutra, to contemplate the four postures. That is, to be mindful, I'll put it in the Buddha's own words. Again, bhikkhus, bhikkhu means, for those of you who are new, one meaning is monk, but it also means anyone who is a serious meditator. Again, bhikkhus, when walking, a bhikkhu understands I'm walking. When standing, he understands I'm standing. When sitting, he understands I'm sitting. When lying down, he understands I'm lying down. Or he understands accordingly, however his body is disposed. So that part of the contemplation of, uh, of the body is, to, is for mindfulness to do whatever, the, to be there as the body does what it does. If the body gets up, mindfulness gets up. If the body starts to walk, mindfulness walks along with it, and so forth. And that's a vital part of our training. Very, very important. It goes on. Full awareness, this section on full awareness. Again, bhikkhus, a bhikkhu is one who acts in full awareness when going forward and returning, who acts in full awareness when looking ahead and looking away, who acts in full awareness when flexing and extending his limbs, who acts in full awareness when wearing his robes and carrying his outer robe and bowl, who acts in full awareness when eating, drinking, consuming food and tasting, who acts in full awareness when defecating and urinating, who acts in full awareness when walking, standing, sitting, falling asleep, waking up, talking, and keeping silent. In other words, you're aware of your, your life as you live it out. Uh, we're being encouraged to pay attention. And this, the door that's entered is through the body. And in the method of Anapanasati, conscious breathing helps you stay awake to the moment, and of course that has to include your body. I mean, your, your body is doing something. And so uh, this is a good opportunity to practice that because our life is so simplified on a retreat. Once we get home, you can still practice mindfulness of the body. You should. It's very, very useful, helpful. But it's harder, as you know, uh, because things get busier. So in this very, very simple little community that we have here, while you have opportunities to do so, uh, bring awareness uh, to the way it is for you, what, what you're doing, if you're turning, standing, sitting, everything that was mentioned. Uh, you don't have to use the breath in an obsessional way. Uh, you know, start, keep the breath in mind and let it grow if it's the, kind of, if it's the method for you. Uh, remember, the key thing is the mindfulness. Conscious breathing can help you be mindful and you have to give it a try to find out. But if you do and you find out that, well, I don't want to use the breath all that much or at all to help me be mindful, fine, let it go. That's not so important. But many people have found that it's tremendous help in terms of being mindful. Okay, remember with the body, the Buddha uh, phrased it, the body in the body. I think we went into that in a, in a bit of detail last night to be intimate with the body, the actual body, not a conceptual or visual body or a body that's a notion in your head, but this, the, the raw body, the bare body. Uh, I think this, uh, everything, the, the um, instructions that I just mentioned of the Buddhas leads naturally into the round of life that we have here. Uh, that, and if you can put mindfulness into practice in all of these uh, activities that we have, there's a daily life here. People talk, speak as if, um, well, there's IMS and now we're going back to daily life. Uh, as far as I can tell, there's only daily life. This is a stage set. You know, now I'm on retreat. Now I realize some of that is helpful. We create a dramatic effect so you think you're doing something incredibly special so that you're motivated to do it, for goodness sakes. Otherwise, how could we get through this? 
but it's kind of emperor's clothes thing. Take a look sometimes, it's just us again, peeing and making number two and eating and showering. And, you know, we're doing the same thing. We're just people living our life, except the rules of this community are a little different. To put it mildly, they're a little different. And they're rules that have been tested and been very helpful over the centuries. But even if, if you just want to uh, say, in between formal practice, there's still a fair amount of our day is spent uh, coming and going and dressing and undressing, washing and so forth. So these are the same things that we, we must take care of wherever we go. Uh, let me try to give you a, a more specific sense of uh, this term intimacy of practice, which um, I find very helpful because I think it's a very economical way of talking about everything we're doing. Finally, an enlightenment, an opening, an awakening is the ultimate intimacy. Oddly, that happens because you're not there to experience the intimacy. I mean, it's not odd, really. We're getting in the way. That's why we don't feel it. Um, take your yogi job. We can use that as an example. And I'm afraid I blew it this time, by my own standards anyway. Last retreat we had here, I, you know, it used to be, or it, the norm here is that people come and request their jobs. And I didn't know that, and I found out, I mean, for years I've been leading retreats here, and I found out that people come four and five hours before a retreat so they can get their favorite job. <laughs> well, once I heard that, I knew we got to stir up the pot a little bit. This is getting too comfy and cozy. Uh, we have to, so the last retreat we just, it was ran, you know, just first come, first serve. And a few professors got toilets, which was perfect. <laughs> you know, it's a, it was good for character development. But I, I thought it would be assumed that if from here on in, every time I lead a retreat, that would go on, but it, it went back to the old system. So I guess I have to, each retreat, make it clear, please randomize it or just go down the list. Uh, the reason being is that I don't think it's just sadism on my part. <laughs> um, it's to learn about yourself. It's to see through all kinds of attachments that we don't even know we have. Um, for example, uh, some of you who have drawn, I don't know how you've got the, the dishwashing machine. Do you have thoughts sort of like, God, this is the, I got the hardest job. Look at those people. They just dust one little panel. <laughs> and, and then they're, uh, they're out jogging and, you know. And here am I. I'm still at it. They came back from their jogging. I'm still doing it. You know, like, that's not fair. You see what I'm getting at. Uh, so whatever one it is, whether it's too long or t you know, too easy, I imagine not, but here's where the intimacy comes in. The way this term is being used, so that it's a Dharma term, uh, it's to alert you, to sensitize you to any separation between you and whatever you're doing. So that if, you're, if you have drawn the toilets and you have an aversion to it, like uh, you've always avoided it at home, you never want to clean it, or maybe you have a high prestige, well-paying job, and uh, how dare they assign you to the toilets. Uh, that thought is getting between you and the toilet. You're not, you're not really cleaning it. <laughs> okay. Yes, it means even that. We're, we're become one with, become intimate with it. That means to just wash the toilets. In the meantime, what you're doing, whether it's that or even when you love something, because typically what we do is when we do something, we think about it at the same time, or we think about something else. When is this going to be over so I can go out and take my walk or go back upstairs and take a nap? Or, Well, if you start paying attention, it's, it's not that you have to force yourself to stare at what you're doing and kind of, you know, in a grim way, uh, make sure you do your job one-pointedly, it's lighter than that. It's uh, less uh, muscular than that. It's not as manual labor as that. It's just notice separation. 
Just notice you're divided. Just notice you're not fully there. A corner of the mind is somewhere else, for whatever reason. You don't like the job, you're in a hurry to go somewhere else, you're thinking about home, or you do love the job and you're complimenting yourself on how much you love the job and how useful it is for all the yogis, and uh, in the meantime, you're not really in touch with it. It's the same with the breath. Uh, intimacy with the breathing would be where there's not, nothing between you and the breath, where you really feel it. Same with the body. So that's an important idea to put into practice. It will make your yogi job, whatever it is, I think a lot more interesting because it is practice and uh, it's transferable because most of us when we go home have jobs. And so it's simpler here. If you can start to learn how to, how to do this in situations that perhaps you're not quite as motivated to do and see that, learn about yourself. It's not to do it in some... Uh, idealistic way, you know, I'm going to be a, a good yogi, he said uh, to not be divided and I'll do that. Uh, it's more an opportunity to learn about yourself. Any resistance is not that you're a bad person, it's that you have an opportunity to learn about that. That's interesting. Why do I hate this? Or why am I resentful of that person? Or whatever. Uh, so that too is part of our, our practice. Whoops, we got to move. <laughs> Um, a lot of uh, let me come back to that in another way so that, to reconcile it with what we've been doing most of what we've been doing or a lot of what we've been doing since Friday night is developing samadhi that is unifying the mind bringing the mind together so that it's stable and fit and supple and able to do the work that, that you give it in a, tomorrow the instructions change the instructions will be at, someone said um, in the interview, we, I, I never know when you guys are going to give meditation instructions. Well, the reason you don't, because we haven't. We just gave one set. It has not changed. It was just Friday night. We've been just going straight ahead, so no one's missed anything. Tomorrow, in the, right before the sitting after breakfast, uh, they'll be, we'll move into the new set of instructions, and I'd like to, as much as possible, lay the groundwork for that in the remaining time that we have. Uh, in working with the breath so exclusively, but also encouraging you to pay attention to everything you're doing, we're developing this quality of mind, samadhi. Uh, a more technical use of the term is called when you apply it, let's say, in action, like to your yogi job, to dressing, to eating, it's called positive samadhi. That means uh, samadhi is not limited to the cushion. Some people think it is. It's not just uh, uh, a technique or a method that you use when you're sitting uh, uh, on your mat. Samadhi is something to be, uh, let's say you develop it. Certainly the cushion is a very, very good place to develop it. But you then bring it from the cushion uh, into the rest of your life. And that interaction goes on forever if you stay with this practice. We develop something in sitting, and then we jump into life. It's not to run away from it, whatever your life is. And then we come back to sitting, and then we bring that energy back into life, and then we uh, sometimes refresh ourselves by coming back to sitting, however that goes, until finally those distinctions disappear. And it's just a life of awareness. Sometimes that awareness is on a cushion. Sometimes it's in a, in a kitchen. Sometimes it's with a ch hugging a child. It, the content, the scenery changes, but you always have the possibility of being alert and learning. Okay, so uh, that's what we've been doing. Our practice is sometimes, uh, you'll hear the term shamatha as well, and uh, one main, it was the main way the Buddha taught, was the practice was called shamatha vipassana, sometimes a hyphenated word, shamatha the way we're using it is roughly synonymous with samadhi. That is, shamatha develops some samadhi. You can use it in ways that they're different. But for the moment, see, listen to it as interchangeable terms. So our practice is shamatha vipassana. And we've been mainly working on the shamatha part. The shamatha is often translated as uh, training in tranquility, ca uh, calmness, serenity, calm abiding, those are some of the typical translations. Uh, and vipassana is uh, insight, as you know, or clear seeing, or deep seeing. Uh, 
when you put them together, the Chinese call it serene reflection, which to me is a very lovely term for it. That is, we bring the mind into a state of calm or serenity so that it is fit to see into itself. And that's what we're doing. So think of it this way. We've been working mainly with, let's say, our right arm since Friday. Every, we've been encouraging right, 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 no matter what you do is right. Soon we're going to say left tomorrow. The left is the Vipassana part of the partnership. And then sometimes question, well, which is more important? Vipassana is wisdom, right? That's much more important. Calm is just, but then other people will uh, divide it up some other way. They're really, would you want to separate your right from your left arm? I mean, they, so that tomorrow we'll uh, describe how important it is to develop your left arm. And then, of course, what we're going to say is now bring them both together so they can work together harmoniously. That's why you have two of them. You know, so they can help each other, work together. Sometimes you use one and not the other, but a lot of life is both. So shamatha is calming the mind to whatever degree you're doing it. It's all going in that direction. Whether you've gotten into what we call jhanas, or very deep states of absorption and clarity and all kinds of nice feelings happening, or uh, from time to time you feel 10 or 15 seconds of calm and clarity. That's it. I mean, we're, it's going in that direction helping the mind to be a little bit clearer, a little bit more fit to be able to attend to itself. Okay. Uh, and a lot of the work that we've been doing has been that, officially. Now, there's no law stopping you from gaining insight from, as we do this samadhi practice. You obviously uh, have learned things as well, so that it's not that uh, learning something is banned from when we do the the main thrust of what we've been doing is coming back to the breath over and over again and trying to stick to it. We haven't emphasized looking at the breath from the point of view of seeing that it's impermanent or that it lacks self. We'll get into that later. Uh, the emphasis has been on sticking and noticing when you slip off and come back and you slip off and you come back. Uh, and so that's one kind of training. For those of you who are new, that's one uh, very important practice not trivial, not kindergarten at all. Okay. The other is uh, when we uh, take that attention and direct it at something so that we can see deeply. Now we're starting to move in that direction. In the sutta itself, we move from the, from the body to feelings. That is, there are 16 contemplations. I'm not going to go through all 16, but I'm going to give you uh, in a sense, the heart of it. We went into the body more deeply. Feelings uh, is the next contemplation, and as you can see, it's becoming a little bit more subtle because feelings are a little bit more subtle than the body. And what feelings mean here, not emotions, uh, those of you who are new to this practice, there's a distinction between feelings and emotion. Feeling is a much simpler event. Emotions are built up out of, out of feelings. Feelings are simply... All day long, we're, as we live out our life, we're encountering the world through the sense doors, through our sense organs, the nose, etc., the body. And the mind is considered a sense organ in Buddhism. Objects come if the faculty works. If a sound comes, the ear works. You hear it. There's a consciousness of it. And so uh, there's that sound and then there's the contact will have a feeling, give birth, it will feel perhaps pleasant, or maybe it'll feel unpleasant, or maybe it'll feel neutral. And in this approach, whatever you are in contact with is going to feel a certain way, and it'll either feel pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. If you say, well, it's mixed, it's a, there's no room for that in this scheme. It's either pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. It's a bit fascistic. <laughs> but it, there's a reason for it. Um, what's important, of course, the pleasant, unpleasant is uh, easier to grasp. Neutral is also a feeling. You may find that you didn't know that you had a lot of neutral feelings throughout the day. Where it's neither pleasant nor unpleasant. It's just, but it's, it's not, you're still alive. Something's happening. It does feel a certain way. It doesn't feel pleasant. It doesn't feel unpleasant. It's neutral. So that's how it's being used. And it's a very, very important one. The Buddha said, all things in the world converge on feelings. 
it's one-fourth of the Satipatthana Sutra and Anapanasati Sutra. It, those of you who know the five khandhas, that is the five elements that make up uh, a human a person, a being, uh, one of those is feelings. So feelings is obviously extremely important. To give you a hint as to why it is, is that you have a, a contact with something through one of your sense organs. It's going to feel a certain way. If it's positive, if it's a pleasant feeling, there's going to be a tendency to want it and to get it and to hold on to it. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Okay. If it's not a pleasant feeling, there's going to be a tendency to want to get away from it, push it away, annihilate it, separate yourself from it. Um, neutral, we tend to space out, get confused, become deluded, uh, get into trouble, <laughs> get bored. You know. Okay. Um, the problem is, from a Dharma point of view, maybe not from the point of view of the world, is that so much of our suffering comes from the fact that we're enslaved to that. We're running after positive feelings, running away from negative feelings all day long. Probably we all came here to get some positive feelings to this retreat. You might say, no, I knew I was going to have a lot of pain and I've been here before. I'm not a new yogi. I didn't have those illusions. Yeah, but didn't you think, you know, sort of like, there's some, you know, you get one of those sittings, mm, humming along nice and, you know, <laughs> and that was worth all of it. You know, just like that, those 15 sec seconds, that nectar is worth a week's torture, you know. And then when you come back, it's a, a good feeling. You do find that you're a little bit lighter and, you know, not as foolish and... Uh, and if you take to it, then you have something to add to your resume. You know, uh, my 15th three-month retreat at IMS. I don't think, yeah, they have. There have been 20, I think. Okay. And so then you start wearing that. Uh, and we encourage it with that questionnaire. I mean, I looked at a few of them, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, uh, 15 sessions, 32 uh, young men junjins, 100 three-month retreats. <laughs> You know, Omega, you know, it's, uh, I can't even think of all the growth centers, you know, like, wow. You know. <laughs> no, there, there's some four-star generals here, you know, who've been through Vietnam and the Gulf War and every, you know, just combat ribbons. I'm impressed. <laughs> but can you follow an in-breath and an out-breath? <laughs> So they're, def they're definitely our re rewards to retreat life, and that's why we come here. And we hanker after them, and you know, and we, but, what we're, but freedom is, is not that. So some of what we're learning is how to, it's not that, to not enjoy good feelings when they come, uh, but we're, we're learning how to be free of the compulsion, free of the, free of the, the craving attachment that does lead to suffering. We know that. It happens over and over again if you pay attention. This particular contemplation is putting an emphasis on getting to know what you're feeling, what the feeling is. Is it pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral? It's as simple as that. All day long it's happening because knowing your feelings has consequences. If you become more sensitive to your feelings, you can feel them without it becoming craving, attachment, or aversion. It just stops there. There's the good feeling, period. You don't uh, make a whole story out of it. Do you see what I'm getting? Whether it's uh, seeing something beautiful in nature or tasting uh, a good, uh, a delicious uh, <clears throat> food from the kitchen, it's not to stamp that out, it's just to know it. Just to start recognizing um, what the feelings are, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral. Uh, and so now we've covered two. Uh, I will, I'm going to cover the third briefly. The third is, they're all quite rich, and the fourth, uh, because I want you to have a bit of a background for tomorrow when you start the instructions. But we will um, deepen our understanding of this for sure, because uh, as you'll see, when we get to the third, which is the, the, the we've had the body, uh, we've had feelings, vedna, upasana, 
than citta upasana, which is the contemplation of the mind itself. And here we have what you might think of as emotions, all kinds of mental, mental formations. The main three for you to know, these three and all of their children and playmates, are greed, hatred, and delusion. You probably, if you've come here, you've heard that. Many, it's coming out of your ears, right? Okay. What the Buddha is saying, for those of you who are newer to this, is these are called kilesas, or afflictions, or toxins, mental toxins. These three forces are very powerful in all of us. They're different. Some people are more greedy. Some people are more uh, angry. Some people are more deluded. And there's even a Buddhist psychology. You're either primarily a greed type or you're primarily a hate type or primarily a deluded type. I'm primarily a deluded type. <laughs> I am, definitely. In other words, deluded types, when it gets re as refined as mine is, you know, <laughs> all kinds of ideals and, you know, just uh, riding off into the sunset to save this and heal that and cure this and, you know, you fall right on your face. So, um, it, none of them are hopeless and we all have all three. So, if you look at the mind in any given moment, it's a good chance that it's uh, in orbit, in, uh, that it's in uh, wanting something, that is, the, the greedy mind is at work. Want, 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 whatever it is. Want that bell to ring. Want that, this is a good sitting. I don't want the bell to ring. Okay, okay. Or the other, not wanting. Hate, 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 averse, averse, averse. Annoyance, annoyance, irritable, irritable, irritable that mind state, or deluded, duh, <laughs> darkness, clouds, uh, ambivalence, conflict, should I sit or should I walk, <laughs> should I have my late night tea or just go to bed, uh, and those three are, are playing, chasing each other through the mind, and their absence, which is very, very important. There are times in the mind when there is no wanting. It's very important to know that. In other words, with the, these kalesas, do you know when the mind is in a wanting mode, when that energy is dominant, do you know it? That's our, ch our learning challenge for that one. But the flip side of that, do you know when the mind isn't wanting, when it's just there? It's a wonderful time. It's very important to see that because it's part of our understanding of what wanting is. We're not, if we say greed is just terrible, just stamp it out. I mean, that isn't these teachings. Then we have a, some kind of puritanical war with any fun in life. It's not what this is at all. Uh, no one's telling you to stamp it out, but we are suggesting you understand it. Start to understand these strong wants that you have. See where they lead. Uh, understand where they come from, the power they have over you, the results that come out of unexamined, mechanical, conditioned wanting. So it's important to know the mind when it's full of wanting. It's also important to know the mind when that stops. Oh, look at that. I don't want anything. Whew. Socrates, uh, he wasn't a Buddhist, but he was smart anyway. <laughs> uh, I think he was a Greek, right? <laughs> I know we have at least one Greek here. Uh, he used to go to the marketplace a lot. And uh, he was this great philosopher. And finally, one day, someone asked him, Socrates, uh, why do you go to the marketplace so often? Uh, so he said, well, I like to go into the marketplace and uh, pass through all the stalls and see all the things that I really don't want and don't need. <laughs> all the things I don't need. In other words, free of it. You know, just... Now, again, don't, especially those of you who are new, we're not saying you can't get a new hi-fi or, you know, you can't get a new outfit or... It's not that. It's just when it becomes a craving and attached and compulsive and out of control. Okay, the second aversion. We get to know the mind when it's very, very angry or averse to something, resistant, annoyed, but also when the mind is very positive. Or it's the other side of that. When it's content, happy, very loving, gentle. Uh, cooperative, uh, all, all kinds of... So it's not just uh, negativity, it's just whatever's there. All, we're visited by the full range of whatever minds have in them. And do, the delusion one, 
uh, it's important to recognize when you're confused. I would think that's one of the most important things in life because so many actions that come out of conflict, indecisiveness, uh, where we're just so tired of not knowing what to do, and we, so we just, just do anything to, just so we don't have to feel confused. It's a kind of, can become humiliating after a while, especially if you're supposed to be an adult. You shouldn't be confused. Children, okay. So it's very important to know that I don't really know. I'm not sure. That's intelligence to be able, because all of us are not sure sometimes. All of us are confused. So that mind state, all those are very, but also that's when the mind is kind of dark, clouded. But it's also very important to be mindful of the mind when it's clear, when it does know, when it's very, very awake, very alert, radiant. It's very important to, see, when we are mindful, we know that mind is more likely to reoccur. We've, so basically, it's what is called self-knowing. We're getting to know ourselves. How does our mind spend its day? You know, just what does it do? Well, if you start watching, you'll see what it does, how it spends its day. Um, crucial, Michael's not here tonight. I can take a little longer, I think. Don't tell him. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> see, I'm kind of a blabbermouth and I run over, and so I promised I wouldn't on this retreat. Okay, but it's on tape, but it'll be too late when he hears about it. Okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Actually, I think it's good training for me to not run over. Uh, I'm just going to mention one area. We will get into it. When you're contemplating, okay, five minutes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, when you're contemplating the mind itself, that's this third realm. Uh, of course, one of the things you're going to have to learn how to attend to his thinking. Uh, thinking is a very, very powerful and profound subject. Uh, when you really look at it carefully, and it's also difficult to begin with, it's, so, it's powerful because it's so subtle. And uh, we worship it, especially people who've had a fair amount of schooling. We're very um, beholden to thinking. And for the most part, it's unexamined. We're so busy using it you know, to, in our jobs and school and so forth, that we haven't fully f figured out what is thinking anyway. Uh, and so we give it immense authority over us. In fact, we attribute thinking to be reality. I think, therefore I am. Some of you, another philosopher, French one. Okay, uh, definitely the Buddha is not saying that. In fact, you might say, I don't think, therefore I am. Because when you stop thinking, you're more real. I mean, you come to a deeper uh, place inside, no question about it. Which is not to discredit thinking. Thinking is a, an extraordinary development, magnificent, brilliant, it's some kind of uh, miracle. And when properly used, enriches our life. But some of what we have to learn here is just, when we do thinking, what is it? What is thinking, anyway? We have to learn that a thought is just a thought. I might say, well, that's obvious. Why is he repeating himself? But we don't really know that deeply, that a thought is just a thought, because we identify with thinking all the time. And so we imbue it with life that, that it doesn't really have, including the big thought, the, the thought that spawns all the trouble, me or I. That thought, which is, which is where all the suffering comes from, finally. So uh, anything that helps us catch on about what uh, that subtle package of energy called a thought is, is a giant step in terms of liberation. There's no question about it. Uh, it can be the main part of your practice. Some people are very drawn to it. I have always been um, amazed by it. I can never, I can't, I still don't know what a thought is. I mean, how, what is that? You know, that blah, 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 that comes through the mind and <laughs> Uh, and then it's gone. And it seems so real, unless you look at it, and then it just withers. It just, just kind of, there's nothing there, really. Uh, it's just a thought. And so, however you come to that, but our main way, of course, is through mindfulness, 
Reflection helps. If you listen to thinking a lot, you can't help but notice some things about it. For example, that we take such tremendous pride in our thinking, my thinking, as if it's an individual accomplishment. Whereas really it's the, a collective accomplishment of the, the human race. And most of it's been fed into us by our ancestors. I hear my father sometimes, my grandmother, you know, like uh, it's the particular culture that you were, grown, uh, you were born into has poured all these thoughts and values and all into us. Uh, we stomp around as if somehow we made up the whole thing, you know, and it's all us. You start to see that thought, you realize, oh, uh, I'm just like a parrot in a way, a high-class parrot, you know. So much of this is just stuff that was fed into me and now I'm, uh, I'm just doing it as if I, with great authority and uh, assertion and all of that. Also, you begin to see the limits of thinking, that thoughts um, don't, they don't match what they describe. They point to it, but they don't, they're not it. They're always, thoughts are always limited. The most profound thought is limited. Those kinds of reflections, which come out of the watching, you, you come to see that, uh, help loosen the, the power of, loosen the, the hold that thought has over us. And so in this one, of course, it's very important to, uh, as we begin to observe, begin to catch on to what thought is. And then, of course, in back of that, silence, which is a very important subject. I'm going to try to make some time for you to say quite a bit about silence, because uh, we in the West don't know much about it. We didn't even know that it's important, in small ways, of course. But I mean, if you're going to enter into this kind of work, uh, meditative work, you've got to understand what you're getting into, and a large part of it has to do with the nature of silence. Uh, that dimension. It's a whole vast dimension. It's not just a little pause here and there or even just keeping quiet for nine days. That's, that's nice, that's, but that's external. The final, and then we'll call it a, an evening, at least for the talking part. The final um, out of tape. Oh. oh, it turns over. To backtrack briefly, we've gotten, if we've done this journey. Now look, I, some of you are very new. Of course you've not covered all of this. Don't feel intimidated or you're like a failure. This is just a, a kind of map, a kind of curriculum. And it's also uh, something that we spend the rest of our life, if you're drawn to this practice, it's essentially a map of ourselves. So we've been encouraged to get to know the body. We've been encouraged to get to know the realm of feelings. We've been encouraged to get to know the mind itself. And finally, it's the realm of dhammas, dhamma upasana. And that is in the Anapanasati Sutra, the Sutra on the Full Awareness of Breathing, is the lawfulness underlying everything that we've all talked about. That is seeing that no matter what you look at in the body, it arises and passes away, and it's, it lacks an enduring core. It's, it has no real self. When you look at feelings, no matter what feeling it is, a deep one, a shallow one, a positive one, a painful one, it arises and passes away and there's no real owner of it. Unless you concoct an owner with, by, by, by means of thought. When we come to the mind itself, every mind state, no matter what it is, arises and passes away. There's no core. You can't find an, an enduring core that persists over time. And this is now we're doing pure vipassana. The, the, the seeing into the nature of mind and body. Seeing into this process. And this is cuts, cuts through content. It's saying independent of content, we're now on a level of process. No matter what you talk about, the content is going to be subject to the same lawfulness. It will arise and pass away, and it will lack self. It will also be ultimately unsatisfying. Ultimately. It may be very pleasant, but it won't last. And so uh, what it is is you kind of revisit everything you've gotten to know 
only now the mind is much more concentrated. You've had some experience playing in the fields of all these different realms. You've had some exposure to, to all kinds of different feelings and bodily conditions and, and mind states. Well, you've had them all along. You've been alive. But now it's been, you've been doing it consciously. And now you revisit them and begin to notice an imp uh, important characteristics of everything that you've become more familiar and intimate with, that they arise and pass away and lack self, for example. Okay. Um, you'll see tomorrow when we, when we change the instructions and uh, why it's necessary that we cover this a little bit. And most of what you're going to learn is not from further talks or books, which of course you know, there will be and you can read when you leave here, but from first-hand knowledge. That's what really matters, is for you to uh, get to know yourself. You have to get to know your feelings, your body, your mind states, and you yourself have to see impermanence. The fact that Buddha saw it with such depth won't help you or me. Each one of us has to really see that so deeply that it makes an imprint on the mind, one that um, enables us to live in accordance with the way things are. If the world is, is indeed constantly changing, but we're not living that way, how could it be anything but suffering? If that's really a law, that everything is in constant flux, everything is uncertain and changing, and we're living uh, as if there are all these certitudes, everything is solid, how could we not be having lots of suffering? We're dancing to the wrong music. It couldn't be very enjoyable. And so a lot of wisdom is uh, seeing this law at work so deeply that quite naturally we start to live in harmony with the way things are rather than in opposition, even though we may not realize we're in opposition. Okay, I think that's enough for this evening. Let's uh, do some more walking practice, please. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.